Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 184 of Fun With Cars Formula One podcast for coverage of, belated we admit, the Belgian Grand Prix. I'm Robin Warner. And I am Jim Lau. And yet again, we have to start the show on a somber note. Uh, of course, this week marked the passing of Justin Wilson, uh, IndyCar driver, former Formula One driver, and uh, I was also in you know the Kart and Champ Car series as it as it went on through the through the you know various years. Uh, but yeah, there was a you know a big crash in uh, Pocono, and uh, he get, you know got caught up in that, and some some debris from that uh, ended up striking him, and uh, it was a, another head injury, and uh, and then you know he was in a coma for a few days, and then after that succumbed to the injuries. So yeah. it's. Man, it's it's tough right now. There's just uh, a lot of bad stuff going on, and it always seems like you know these really promising people and and really quality dudes and all that, and uh, and yet uh, you know they're they're you know more people gone from us just from this the you know dangerous sport. The only reason that Justin wasn't successful in Formula One, I think, was his height. I mean, like literally, he was tall enough that that became an issue, and he had to be better than the average person enough to justify building a car to accommodate because he was like six four hmm. so he he moved to the states to do cart which became champ car which became indie car and he just he was always punching above his weight to go with a boxing reference and he was your classic, he didn't just automatically have a ton of money. He came up with some clever ways to get in and move up in the sport. And he was just your classic, find a way to get it done, racing driver. Huge, huge respect for him all along. And for him to uh, pass away and, and die in a race car, in a way, it's like, well, you know, with the cliche, well, he... He was doing what he loved, but it's like, yeah, it's still really awful. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he's, you know, it's less than four years ago was when Dan Weldon passed away for IndyCar. And, you know, less than a month ago was when Jules Bianchi passed away. So it's been a rough go for promising young drivers. And more specifically, it's been really frustrating to see the brilliant um English drivers that are in IndyCar passing away. Yeah, and there's been more conversation um, as as usual about um, is closed canopies. You know, should we be should we be going that route? You know, what can we be doing differently about safety and all that? And it's I mean it's tough because there's no one simple answer. Uh, you know, I think like we talked about with Jules Bianchi, uh, some like the virtual safety car, and there's like there's other ways the, without physically changing what's going on in the cars to try to make that safer. Um, but uh, to make sure that, you know, the circumstances uh, are less likely to happen, that something bad happens. Um, but there's an important point with, you know, even with canopies, something, you know, on oval tracks especially, which is, of course, a problem for IndyCar and not for Formula One, is, you know, everybody's just so much closer. All the cars are there together. Uh, all the fans are right there, um, you know, not far from there. But it's like there's only so many places that, you know, when there's debris, when there's a tire getting loose, when there's, you know, crashed cars or whatever's going on, uh, there's only so many places those can go, and uh, they're gonna they're gonna you know follow whatever path they're on. So uh, there are these these things, especially at ovals, uh, that's more of a problem where um, you know debris just doesn't really have a place to to go. There's there's catch fences everywhere, 
Um, but if there were closed canopies and something happens in a piece of debris, instead of hitting the driver, you know, maybe because, you know, it's so hard to predict how these things are going to go, it could, you know, bounce off one canopy and go into the stands or go into another car or go into something else. So it's like even just closed canopies isn't necessarily uh, this this magic solution that's going to fix everything. And of course, there are cases where you could have a crash that, you know, uh, a few seconds longer to get out of the car uh, could be the difference between serious injury or not, where a closed canopy would be a problem. So I think that latter point is the uh, most appropriate uh, for sure. And that certainly for Formula One um, is, you know, probably more of a more of a concern because there's not spectators as close to the fan as close to the track in, in F1 and so on. But uh, yeah, I mean, so just looking at uh, Justin Wilson's history quickly, um, it seemed like, well, real yeah. quick, if you don't mind, uh, the problem I'm, I'm having a harder time thinking against closed canopies because uh, Felipe Massa's accident in 2009, mm-hmm. uh, that, that would have <laughs> certainly helped that um, with, a, with an errant spring bouncing on track, debris. Um, Dan Weldon's accident, that one I'm not so sure about, but, uh, and then Bianchi's accident, absolutely, that's something that was discussed. I mean, that rightly would have absorbed at least some of the impact before it got to his head. And then, yeah, now Justin Wilson's, Massa's and Wilson's are the most obvious results, but we do absolutely have to be careful about not causing another problem by fixing this one but the evidence is kind of stacking against keeping the cockpit open yeah yeah it's interesting i mean of course in the top level prototype cars for sports cars that they're all closed cockpit now in lmp1 and uh you know i don't think the racing has gotten worse or anything and they've got doors and they've got a whole way of figuring it out i don't know how exactly you translate that to an open wheel car but obviously there's lots of brilliant designers out there and you know uh really you know smart people working on this so uh, if that is the new rule, then I'm sure teams could figure out ways to to make it work and make it safe and get the driver in and out quickly. And you know the cars would look different, but if it makes people safer, then uh, it, it could be worthwhile. But it's it's really tough just to to try to think about all the you know all the possibilities uh, and then and understanding that at some point it's just a kind of a matter of statistics of how likely is it that this is going to happen versus how likely is it that that other thing is going to happen. Uh, but when it, it definitely hits home though when you know, when someone dies, uh, when, you know, just all the circumstances just happen to come together in such a way that, you know, freak as it might be, this is the one in a million or whatever, but when it happens and that's a real person with a family and all that, and, uh, it definitely just becomes very real that, uh, two, two daughters, yeah, two daughters, actually, I, I think eight and 10, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So of course that's hard and, uh, uh, yeah, it's tough, but you know, I think the important bit is that Justin Wilson was near universally revered. Right. And, you know, he left a very positive and lasting legacy in in this sport. And uh, he was proof that tall people can race, too. <laughs> well, what I was going to say about his career uh, briefly. So he was in, in 2003. Uh, you know, Minardi apparently de- uh, designed the car around him being six foot four. Uh, and so he was there, and then he switched to Jaguar for the end of the season, for the last few races of the season, with the plan of going into next year as a full Jaguar driver. Um, but right then is when Christian Clean got involved with backing from Red Bull. Um, and then, obviously, as we know, uh, Red Bull eventually you know bought the team, and that, that became Red Bull Racing and so on. So it's like to go for a small team or a mid, mid-pack, midfield team um, to, you know, they can't 
you know, they can't turn away money if there's an option. And then Red Bull obviously was such a huge powerhouse then and has become uh, what it is now uh, that, you know, it's sort of almost an impossible thing, you know, as good as Wilson uh, was to, you know, for the, for the company to make a call to say, oh, yeah, well, we've got this guy and he's really tall and he's really good and we'll have to, you know, suit our car. But it's like this other guy, Christian Clean, and, you know, in Clean's career never ended up being uh, amazing. But having that Red Bull connection was a huge turnaround for the team. And that's what enabled, you know, Red Bull as it is today uh, to, you know, to come out of uh, the Jaguar team and all that and, you know, the, the Ford effort and everything. So it's, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know how, you know, he would have had to been, I don't know how much how much phenomenal he could have been uh, to to make a business decision that uh, or for you know for Jaguar to make a business decision to say oh no you know this guy is so so good that even these millions of dollars is going to really turn around our team like we have to keep this guy it's like almost of impossible Absolutely, that it would have gone that way and uh, and so it's you know not his fault and it's just it's just one of these things that uh, you know his, who knows how differently it could have been you know there's this video of him out qualifying Schumacher um, you know in, in in like what late '03 I guess. Um, and, you know, having some, some really good performances and all that. And then, uh, as you say, he went on to, uh, to do pretty well in, in Champ Car and IndyCar. And, uh, uh, he, would, he would win races, and he never competed with Penske for Penske or Ganassi. Right. He was with Dale Coyne. And most recently, he felt really great to be with Andretti's team, which is kind of the biggest of the non <laughs> Ganassi, Penske, the Empire. Dynasty, whatever. Right. Yeah. And that was his best opportunity yet to do well. He had a second place in mid Ohio, just last, the race before. And, you know, so he, he continually did well in cars that weren't traditionally um, as likely to win a race. Yeah. And I'd forgotten about this too, but um, he was sort of a pioneer in crowdfunding. Um, to get his seat in uh, in the minority in 2003, he actually had a, you know, it was before Kickstarter and these things, you know, were, were a thing. But, you know, this is 12 years ago um, and, and even longer by the time he was planning it, uh, you know, had a, a, a public share program where people could buy in shares and it was publicized and everything. And, um, you know, there were over 900 people, um, and, you know, invested a minimum of 500 pounds. And, um, you know, it just kind of like that was ahead of its time. I mean, that, that idea, and obviously that is, that has come back in a few ways with, you know, the caterham's effort, which was kind of weird and, um, and other things, but obviously like the idea of, uh, of not just being, I'm a driver and I've got lots of money and I'm really good, but to really, you know, say, Hey, I don't have a lot of money, but I have this talent and I've got the ability to connect with fans and get people involved. I mean, that's, um, yeah, you know, I, that was ahead of its time as well. So it's anyway, it's, I think Ryan Hunter Ray did something kind of similar, Yeah, but his, I think was just one or maybe a few, wealthy donors similar setup whereas like you say justin wilson 900 i mean that's impressive in in of itself right and to get convince 900 people hey i'll invest in you i'll take you know here's right. some money and that's where he had some publicity from tv but this is pre-facebook and pre-twitter uh you know and, and if you think about how these campaigns are now it's so easy to for everybody to click share and you know to do uh, you know, PayPal and everything, but it's like to do this 12 years ago when it was like, you know, probably sending in checks and all that, like so much more effort than just, you know, <laughs> clicking links and doing it. So I have anyway. to do something on paper. I know. What? I have to go to the mailbox. What? <laughs> anyway, it, uh, it was devastating to hear that, you know, he succumbed to the industry injuries. Uh, of course, when I heard coma, I was like, oh, geez, here we go again. And I absolutely expected him to pull through you know so and real quick this is just a quick little aside but uh i do want to say that it was very nice and uh, genuine of tony stewart 
it's a little thing, but Tony Stewart offered his uh, private plane to Justin's wife to get her out to him um, more quickly and all that kind of stuff. And that, that, that was a nice gesture. And uh, yeah, I saw some comments on that and apparently, uh, you know, Tony Stewart just, just likes to do stuff like that. Uh, you know, just whatever, if he can help out in some way, um, you know, it's going to be some inconvenience for him. He's, you know, he's got a lot of other, you know, powerful friends and whatever he can figure something out, but just to be able to, uh, you know, for Justin Wilson's family who doesn't just can't just summon a private plane at no moment's notice to, for them to just have, one less thing to worry about and say, okay, get the family together, just do what you can, and then Tony will go figure something else out. It's just the nicest thing to uh, to be able to offer that. And uh, I saw some comments about that, that he's done things like that in the past, you know, just help out yeah. where he can. And, and Tony uh, Stewart is, you know, far from perfect, and he's got plenty of his own drama to deal with. But for me, that was a... He seems like a quality dude. Right, exactly. Right. Um, but there was a race last week um, in Belgium. Right. And... Perhaps we should uh, take a moment to talk about that one. Yes, we were unable to watch and podcast that one at our normal uh, quick schedule because apparently it has already been a year since my daughter was born, and uh, thus we were having a birthday party for her. And she had to make a big deal about it. Right, a a new level of chaos that I had previously uh, (laughs) uh, understood because having our our child around the house and taking care of her is one thing, but having 40 other people and and everyone uh, and having a whole big event and little kids running around everywhere was... uh, it was quite a thing, and uh, so there was no way I was going to also be able to watch the race and then have the time and effort to energy to uh, to podcast about it then, so we've uh, we've delayed it. But here we are. So we're kind of looking at it through a little bit longer lens than, uh, than having just watched the thing. Um, and at the very top of the race was not super exciting, right? Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg um, in a 1-2. They started that way. They finished that way. Well, there was... Eh, I mean, I, I disagree a little bit. Okay. Because... Okay. Was it exciting at the beginning at the front? No. Lewis Hamilton started on pole, maintained pole, and carried on his way. But this was the first race we experienced with the um, unaided, uh, no consulting allowed from the engineers on clutch settings, etc., etc., for the launch start. And that did, it wasn't like some massive drama, but it was definitely different. There was variation a larger variation in uh, starts and uh, ability to accelerate off the line, which did add, I would say, a couple shades of color to the start. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that that was as big a deal as was being talked about, because I think, uh, as I understand it, and and I may have this slightly wrong, but from articles and stuff that I've read and some interviews, the idea is uh, they set in the you know in the computer in the steering wheel for the car they set the clutch bite point and we've always heard on the on the uh, installation lab uh, when drivers have to do clutch bite point tests where they try to optimize and figure out okay what is the right RPM you know where where should we um, have the clutch pick up and you know make sure that's all dialed in uh, and then the but the engineers can sort of tell them they can look at the data that's coming off the car yeah. and tell them okay yeah you know move your clutch bite point by this or that or you know whatever the, the values they use so dial it forward dial it back or whatever um, and do that. Uh, but the the act of starting the race was, I think, basically unchanged because it was what they what they lost is the engineers on the pit wall their ability to say to the drivers in the car, here's what you should do. It was just the car the drivers could still do their tests, you know, the exit of pit lane um, during practice during qualifying, um, and I, I guess even on installation laps, you know, during uh, warm up for the race, uh, you could you know you could do a burnout coming out of the you know at the pit exit and figure out you know is your clutch bite point in the right place and move it a little bit to adjust it. And then you'd come onto the grid, but what you're actually doing with your hands and feet on the grid is the same as it was before. So I think it's just that little difference in 
you know, who's doing the determination of is my clutch bite point optimized or not. Right. But, but the actual process of starting um, is is pretty similar. So yeah, well, does I'm, that line up with your understanding? Absolutely, yeah. No, no, that is, that is exactly what I understand. But I think that is the important point. The engineers have, okay, first of all, engineers are the smartest people in the world. Thank you. Second of all, well. <laughs> second of all, um, the engineers, they're literally staring at the graphs, X and Y values of um, inputs and outputs, and they can say, okay, this is the peak, and it's at this point right here and here. They can look at data and say that. The drivers, they have feel, and they're very sensitive and attuned to that, but it's not as precise as engineering data, and engineers have the advantage of not being in the car and having a million other things to think about. And they can just say, yep, this is the best pipe point based on the thing. So that is... Yeah, there could be the, one guy that like just looks at the clutch data, just looks at, uh, you know, okay, revs and output shaft speed and friction levels and temperature and everything. And just like all he all he's worried about for the weekend is like, is the clutch working right? You know, and right. that's just that guy. And I'm sure the engineers put a finger in the air and be like, yeah, with, you know, there's a little bit of their own. Yeah, you could go this way. You could go that way. Right. And they, they make some decisions as well. But my point is... That one little step that's been taken out is the critical step. Yeah. And I don't know. For me, there was definite variation in the people's ability to get off the line more so than we typically see. Like, what did we see in years past? Everyone got off the line the same except for Mark Weber, <laughs> who always had some nonsense. Who was ahead of his time with that rule change. <laughs> right, and- exactly. And, uh, and I mean, that was fairly uh, vanilla. And... This didn't result in some huge epic race, and this solved all the problems. Now Formula One's perfect. It wasn't anything like that, but to me, that did add. I am officially a fan of that sequence. Okay, yeah, I, I guess we don't know for sure. You know, every once in a while we would see some variation, and some people would get a better start than others. So we don't know how much of that was to the, to the new race, but or the new rules. But as you say, you know, this was a, a dynamic start and uh, had some some uh, you know differences to it. I mean, the big thing, I think, is Checo Perez, who was, uh, you know, past Rosberg for a second uh, and then was right up alongside Lewis Hamilton. Lewis was having none of that and was probably like, wait, seriously, that's Checo behind me? Like, what? Right. Um, that was cool because, you know, it's and they talked about this a little bit in our coverage, well, too. And why was that the case, though? Nico did not get a great start. Right. And Hamilton's was just fine. Right. Hamilton's was closer to normal. Yeah. Nico's was off by a step or two. Right. And I guess I, I'm trying to remember. Did did we hear from Nico about that? Because I thought he said it hadn't have anything to do with it. But this again was a little while ago now, so it may not be. Uh, yeah, I that, think but... he said that uh, Lewis Hamilton told him to use four, so he used four, and it's all Lewis Hamilton's fault. Probably. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was. It, it's a bit, Spa has been a special track for Force India slash uh, you know uh, Jordan slash Spiker slash Midland or whatever this team has been called. Uh, you know, I remember you know what Giancarlo Fisichella uh, you know doing well here. I remember you know Hulkenberg doing well in the past. Like this track for whatever reason, uh, you know the, the Force Indias have gone well. Um, so to see um, Checo Perez continue that, Hulkenberg had a disastrous race. Of course, but it was like uh, you know didn't get off on this. Uh, oh yeah, on the first uh, his his car DNS right no start right like on the first start and then they did the false start and everybody went around again. His car like that that sucks, especially seeing your teammate go off and being challenging for the lead. I mean, of all the cars to be doing that in the Force India, it's a real shame that you know Hulkenberg wasn't able to see that. Yeah, Hulken, Hulkenberg just to close it out. Hulkenberg finished twentieth DNS the yeah. only one we had uh, Maldonado with the DNF. Ricardo with the DNF and Carlos Sainz with the DNF, um, but uh, Pastor—that's one we can get to in a moment. Anyway, um, ultimately, uh, <laughs> it's funny the team is blaming Pastor 
Um, the car failed. Right. But ahead of time, he had some impact with the curbs. He had a 17G impact. Exactly right. <laughs> in a rouge. Yeah. And that, they said, led to the failure. And it's kind of like, yeah, okay, but... I, all right, there's curbs right there. These things happen, and the car failed. So yes, share share the blame. That's fine. Well, I think that's that's an interesting point. There's a, a you know more finger pointing uh, of this past weekend than, than we've seen in a little while in Formula One. And of course, exactly, one of those is um, Rosberg's tire failure in was it practice um, with the yes. you know, at the top of the Kemmel Straight or, what, or no, it wasn't at the Kemmel Straight because that would have been faster. It was, but it was the back straight in. It was just coming out over into Pujol. Yeah. So which is really fast right but it looks like he's just going and everything's fine and all of a sudden the tire just separates around the very middle of you know circumference of the tire and then separates and then you know the one part flies off the other part stays on and it was just like a very strange tire failure and everyone says oh no there's a problem this tire these probably tires there's a problem there's an issue you know this is shades of silverstone and whatnot where it's just like something's going wrong with the tires we don't know what it is and this must be a bad you know construction from pirelli and everyone looked into it of course this is you know friday practice so they're trying to figure out everyone's trying to figure out you know do we need to you know, change something right now? Do we need to cancel this race? Do we need to get different tires? Like, what do we need to do to make sure that, you know, we don't just have random tire failures? And everyone looks into it from the Mercedes side and from Pirelli, and they just got down to, well, there was some debris, there was some kind of cut that just happened in just a weird particular way. Right. Um, and it's so hard to prove. I mean, when you think about what they're looking at forensically, they've got the data of temperature and pressure, uh, which probably say everything's fine. Oh, now everything's not fine. And now the tire's blown up. You know, it's like, it's not, you know, uh, to some of these, they have cameras, but even, you know, a camera, unless it's some super high-speed camera on all the different components of the car, is not going to pick up whatever tiny little piece of debris, you know, a little piece of shard of carbon or whatever it may be that uh, that he picked up on the tire. Uh, And then, you know, Pirelli can look at this damaged hulk of a tire and try to forensically work backwards to what is it that caused this, which is a very difficult job in itself. I mean, you know, they know what the tire looked like when it was new. They can see what it looks like then, but that's not only having exploded. It's not that it's a moment frozen in time, the moment after it exploded. No, it was also, you know, parts of it flew off and this car was driven around half a lap back to whatever, you know, it's like, right. you know, slid there, off the track. It was a whole thing. There was, speaking of half a lap, there was half a lap prior to this happening. There was sh- evidence of that tire starting to fail, cords coming loose and that, so exactly when the cut happened right. and how long it took for that, um, for how long that took time to actually result in the explosion, because it could be that the cut happened a lap before, and right. eventually that led to that cord flapping, which eventually led, you know what I mean? Or it could be that that happened right away. Right. There's tons of variables. And... It's, yeah. Well, so what people can agree on, I mean, Patty Lowe from Mercedes has said, you know, I've, in all my years of, you know, engineering in Formula One, I've never seen a tire failure like this. And I think, you know, Pirelli is standing by their product and saying, well, there's debris. I mean, if your track gets, you know, if your tire gets cut, uh, there's only so much we can do about that. You know, like there's uh, just like you're talking about statistics and everything else. That's like what, you know, unless, you know, this is what a tire does and what it has to do to, you know, be a certain strength and, you know, be flexible and be, you know, be a tire. Um, it's going to get cut sometimes, and when it gets cut, we can't always vouch for how it's going to fail. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they stand by that, you know, okay, this was not a tire that just failed for no reason. There was a reason, and that reason was debris, and, you know, you can't, you know, they can't really prove one way or the other what was what was going on, but I think ultimately the team accepted that, and the other teams accepted that because, um, you know, they kept running, and they ran the other cars, and they didn't, you know, it wasn't like, hey, everybody freeze, we need to figure this out, uh, or, of course, like the infamous, you know, USGP of 2005, of course. where it's like, oh, this isn't safe. We can't, you know, the tires, pressures you want to run, we can't run this. And we, you know, all the, uh, what was it, all the Bridgestone? All, all the Michelin The teams. Bridgestones could run, the Michelins could not run. Yeah. 
Uh, because and the Bridgestones, Bridgestones were three teams. Right. Michelin's were everyone else. Right. Yeah. So that was anyway. That was that was thing. yeah. That was the that was the year that uh, was it. I think it was Jordan at the time. Yep. And it was uh, Ferrari, Jordan, and maybe it was Minardi. I think it was Minardi. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it was like, hey, look, you know, Jordan on a podium. <laughs> yeah. You know that. And still, uh, Schumacher and Barrichello almost got together in a race with only six cars in it. Anyway. Um, that's not what we're here about, but the, uh, you know, so some extra drama to that, um, was then of course, uh, Sebastian Vettel's very late race tire failure, um, yes. which then people said, wait a minute, that's kind of like, uh, that's kind of like Rosberg's failure. And maybe there was something with the tires and the thing with Mercedes, um, is everyone looked at, okay, well, were they doing something weird with the tires? You know, we've seen one of the things we saw in Silverstone. Well, alignment angles, things like that. Right. Caster, well, camber, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. The, well, not caster, camber, toe, those types of things. The pressure envelope, how long you're using them, the temperatures and all that. And Pirelli looked at that and actually made made the point to say, oh, Mercedes was doing, you know, an exemplary job, I think was the word they used, of following exactly our guidelines and all the pressures and temperatures and when they were using it was all within spec. Um, not so with Ferrari where they said, oh, you guys, you guys tried to run this tire well, you know, longer than necessary, like longer than would be normal. Um, and they don't have specific rules about this. That's one of the outcomes of this is they're saying, okay, in some other series, the tire manufacturer will say, you know, this tire is good for whatever lap, 26 laps. You want to use it longer than that? You, you know, you can't, or you, you get a penalty on your own. or, you know, we, we can't vouch for anything. Like this is what we tested for that. That's not a, a strict rule in formula one, but they have guidelines. Uh, and, and apparently, you know, and I think <laughs> it's a guideline. There's a real limit. There's a rule for a reason, but, um, so with Ferrari, I mean, they did, uh, there was a, a radio transmission to Vettel a few laps prior saying, hey, you know, careful of the tires. Maybe we want to do a last pit stop. You know, they did a one stop. Ultimately, well, I, guess, I guess ultimately one and a half stop because the second came to a stop. But um, one one actual, <laughs> one tire change, we could say. <laughs> it's a one and a half stop. Well, you know, stop. one tire change. Uh, and, you know, the engineering was looking at the tires and thinking, oh, well, actually, maybe we should do a second stop. It's not going to be as good for our strategy. But you know, Grosjean is pressuring us from behind with, you know, much fresher tires. And, you know, this is this is looking unlikely anyway. Um, and then he had this tire failure. So that one, I think, is an easier, uh, you know, it's easier for Pirelli to point at the data and say, well, let's look at how, how warm these tires were and how long they were running them. Uh, but it's another case of, well, should the tire have performed differently or should the driver have done something differently? Um, and then, you know, when you look back at the data, you can just look at onboard, you know, or, or onboard or trackside video and see Vettel, uh, you know, going over the going over curbs, uh, you know, on these uh, ragged tires, and thinking, okay, okay, you know, Vettel stands by his his team's decision, um, but um, and saying, oh, yeah, the tire should have been fine; it shouldn't have failed. Uh, but you know, looking at the data, it's like Vettel, you were doing a lot of curb hitting, and your team was already talking about maybe these tires aren't going to make it. Right. And he was saying this cost me third place, and we're like, nah, Grosjean may have had you anyway because he was really on a charge and really doing well. And yeah, you know, Vettel's not an easy guy to pass, but still. Um, you know, Grosjean was doing really well. Yeah, he you know had... why he's not an easy guy to pass? He's a Formula One driver. Uh, but here's the thing. Grosjean is also a Formula One driver. And Grosjean would have had DRS, I mean, and on and on. So it's, I think it seems a little bit sour grapes on Ferrari's part, um, you know, and Vettel just being part of that, to uh, to not just sort of say, yeah, you know, we, we tried a strategy. You know, we, you know, every strategy has its ups and downs. And this is one of the things that can happen when you're on a, you know, on a strategy. It doesn't quite work out. But hey, you know, better luck next time. Whatever. Like, but they really stuck to their to, to their position, saying, "Oh, we should have done this, and the tire was wrong." And absolutely, you know, I can't say that I uh, that I have too much sympathy for them in this particular case. Have to agree. Speaking of Ferrari, uh, Honda fixed all their problems and now make Ferrari power in their engines. So that is why uh, Fernando Alonso and Jensen Button were also threatening for the podium. 
Uh, I think I missed a step. Yeah, it, it, I was genuinely elated, and really, it was, Honda was ba- saying basically, "We're going to make Ferrari power now, so you know it's going to get way more competitive." And it didn't. Yeah, that was the thing, right? Is that the cooling wasn't work wasn't worked out right in the McLaren chassis, so that. The whole thing with Honda, basically, why they're why they've been so slow so far, is that hey, we had to turn power way down just to stay within this cooling envelope. Exactly. Right. So then they come out and it's you know the, the summer break. There's a two weeks off mandatory shutdown, but there's then a, you know a few weeks on where people are working again and they sort of say hey, we're, we're you know we've made revisions, we figured some stuff out, and hopefully you know that kind of seems like well you know they shouldn't be this far off the pace. They must have fixed the one thing, and now they can you know now that they fix this one other problem, now they can turn the power up, and then they'll be competitive. And even you know, Button and Alonso were also upbeat sounding in press releases and, and stuff. Yeah, towards um, the beginning, saying yeah. you know be, you know before actually running, I think on Friday, um, saying hey, this all looks really positive. You know, they probably seen some stuff from the dyno and say okay, yeah, this is all gonna this is gonna come together well. And uh, I didn't. Yeah, it just it just didn't, and I'm having a harder and harder time. Monza is that. <laughs> My, oh, God, claim chowder. Yeah. Yeah. I. So you made a claim, which was, it was two-parter. Yeah. It was, we would see a McLaren Honda in Q3. Yep. Right? And we did. No. Not yet. Oh, we almost, that's the but, part. Uh, it was in finishing eight. Oh, yeah. And so we, which we got in Monaco. That's right. That's and, I, right. and I'm like, boom, all they got to do is one of them get into Q3. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. You look at the trajectory <laughs> and, you know, they started way, way off and then they got closer and closer. But, yeah. What but, so Q3? now Monza, mm. Monza is... If there is a power track on the circuit, Monza is that power track. And, yeah, so let's uh, go ahead and turn those things up. Let's melt a couple of parts on them. Why not, right? Let's do, just go for it. But here's the other side of it. Well, let's go classic F1 turbo era, right, which is just like run this engine at ridiculous boost right. that can't last so that as soon as you cross the finish line on your flying lap, the whole thing melts. I did not say it had to be eighth place on the grid or better. Ah, I did. Yeah, see? And, so, and then they have to change everything and they take, you know, a, a, take whatever a, penalties, 80 grid spot penalty and then they start from the back. Well, now, they, that was an adjustment they made, thank goodness, that if you end up in the back of the pack, that is, is all they can do. They're not going to keep adding grid penalty upon grid penalty that you know, carries you to the next race and all this. And wasn't there one engine amnesty where they're like, okay, you can make one swap and then we won't count anything as penalties. And then Honda did that and they still had changed some other stuff, a gearbox and everything else. So they still had penalties. It was like, hey, thanks for that, but we're still at the back because right, right. we had these other penalties. It's just like, but man, it's tough back there. Here's the other part of it. How much I'm, and I don't know yet, I haven't read any reports saying so, but how much is Honda like, guys, the engine's doing pretty well now. How about that chassis? When is that... When and how, because that's kind of a weird dynamic. McLaren's chassis has been, um, you know, sheltered by the fact that Honda's engines have been making all this news. But I don't know. How how good is this McLaren? Yeah, well, it's really tough to say, right? Because you don't have a good A-B comparison. You can't just, oh, let's just put the Honda in the Mercedes and just see how it goes. Because, A, it doesn't work like that. The cars are the engines designed together. But the other thing was, you know, 2015 was always set to be uh, a McLaren Honda exclusive, and this was, of course, before you know people had anyone had seen the performance because this was talked about in 2013 and 2014. It was you know okay, this is this is how it's going to be. But 2016 and beyond, uh, Honda could have customer engines. There could be another team using Honda Power. Now, after 2015, I don't think any teams are signing up for that. 
The um, line is not super long. You're right, but that would be the question, right? Is sometimes like you know you see the you see the uh, you know Renault obviously has been talked about this year as oh man this engine sucks and your know, Red Bull seems really down on them and yet every once in a while especially the STRs uh, will be up there and have uh, have some solid performances and you think like okay well there you have the same engines and yet they're doing better so. At least it keeps everyone honest, right? It gives you one bit of comparison. And, of course, the cars are different and the drivers are different and everything's, you know, there's lots to compare. But it gives you some extra data. And with the McLaren Honda, I really don't think you can point at the drivers. I mean, these two drivers are excellent. Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Be- <laughs> and, and what's his name? Jensen Button. <laughs> what did I say? Sebastian Button? Wow. I'm getting confused. Um, it's quite all right. Both- you, you, are, you are excused. It's your age. You're getting old. I am getting old. Yeah. Um, but no, Button and Alonso, I mean, are both just fantastic drivers. They know how to push a car. They know how to develop a car, it seems. Uh, it's like, I really don't think this is a case of that, you know, the cars are really great. It's just if only they could get a good driver in there. And uh, speaking of age, they are also a couple of the oldest drivers on the grid. Yeah, but they've got uh, Kevin Magnussen as test driver, and he, you know, sat in for, uh, anyway, whatever. There's, uh, it's no, not, I'm, I don't I'm think it's defending age I know. here. Well, and, uh, yeah, so I don't think it's a driver's. Um, we don't know how much of it is engine, how much of it is car. Now Honda is at least saying, it's like, hey, on a dyno in certain circumstances, maybe that's one thing to say, okay, on a dyno, we had the cooling all figured out. But now, uh, out in the car, eh, well, maybe the packaging, maybe the whatever, you know, and that's, is that an engine problem or a car problem is kind of a philosophical yeah, debate. Yeah, I'm sure it's, Honda was like, wait, 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 you're taking the car outside? Wait, hold on. Whoa, hold on. <laughs> whoa. Yeah. You're only going to give us how much air? Oh, hmm. How big are the radiators? Yeah. So it's, it's, I don't know that we'll ever know. And I guess my, my hope is that. My hope is that things get turned around. You know, somebody figures out whatever the, you know, maybe maybe it's a, a push and pull between uh, the chassis guys and cooling and the power guys and, and, you know, power delivery and all the, you know, the hybrid system and all that. And they figure out like, okay, guys, we really need a few extra, you know, square centimeters of radiator area. Then we can get this thing cool. Then we can turn up the wick. Then all the power, like, you know, they come to some agreement that just fixes this problem. Uh, but it really, it seems like we would have gotten there by now, at, you know, this far into the season and after the breaks. Officially and after, more than halfway. Right. Uh, yeah. And and they sort of said that they were there and they're not. So it's, again, sort of more of this, this finger pointing uh, going around about, is it, you know, is it the car? Is it the, is it the engine? And, you know, so far people aren't saying, oh man, these drivers, that, that, that Sebastian button is no good. You know, no one is saying that. Yeah. That's because that's, that's not a driver, not, but Hey, a person. the, the other part of it, it, one little funny aside, funny, you know, McLaren does build their own engine and they are turbocharged in fact. And I can tell you personally, they're quite good. <laughs> and I, I, I know that the complication and the expertise and the money involved to build a Formula One engine is a whole new world. It is unique and uh, expensive and difficult. But I wonder how long McLaren goes before they say, well, let's just build our own powertrain. Right. When it made an inter- a certain amount of business sense for McLaren Mercedes when there was a, you know, Mercedes, you know, McLaren Mercedes, you know, road car model. Well, and and at the time, Mercedes owned, what, 40% of the team? Right. There was, you know, a whole, and that was, you know, sort of the Mercedes works team. I mean, unofficially, but that was, you know, they they definitely hung their head on the fact that, hey, Mercedes has just won the race. And the fact that it was made by McLaren is whatever, but it was Mercedes, you know, that was a big deal. And, uh, and, you know, and then they they had what the SLR McLaren or whatever uh, you know road car yep. that made sense because it's like hey this is a McLaren and it's Mercedes and Mercedes power and uh, you know especially for road cars and supercars you know I don't think many people would disagree that Mercedes makes great road car engines as well I mean and there's all these other sort of um, supercars and things that use Mercedes power you know I think of Pagani Zonda and some of these you know well, the, and Aston Martin is yeah. going to use. Mercedes power. Right. And so there's a few other sort of these, you know, low volume supercars that use Mercedes power and they're very well regarded. So, uh, you know, that's, that is what it is. But then on, you know, for Honda, 
uh, you know, yes, they're building a, the new NSX and that's going to be special and that's probably going to be really cool, but they're not, you know, they don't supply engines to supercars really at all, um, except for maybe their own soon. But, um, you know, it, it, there's not as much of a business tie-up where, like, McLaren makes road cars that are great, and they make their own engines for those road cars. So uh, the idea of having a McLaren powertrain in their race car and in your road car, and, in, you know, they also have the GT cars and stuff that, you know, the other McLaren race cars that they build that aren't for Formula 1, um, that makes a certain amount of sense to kind of for the, the marketing, you know, message and the brand and saying, hey, we're really amazing good engineering at chassis and at powertrain and aerodynamics and everything. Uh, and they're not sort of able to tell that message because, A, their cars are super far off the pace and they're, you know, Honda and McLaren are sort of pointing fingers at each other saying, oh, we can't do this. Oh, we can't do that. Um, and and B, because even if they say, hey, we, you know, we make this we make this great car. Um, but, yeah, we use this Honda engine. And, you know, that's cool in a historical way because, of course, there have been some amazing McLaren Hondas. But Honda isn't like the race engine company like they used to be uh, for, for those kind of things. I mean, well, there's IndyCar engines. I mean, that's that's a thing. But, yeah. Uh, Otherwise, it's, uh, you know, it just doesn't kind of seem like it makes as much sense for the road car marketing message as it used to. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's just, you know, Alonzo was in 13th, Button was in 14th, and we can see everyone's patience starting to wear out. There's an article on Autosport where Button was talking about how much fun he was having doing a rally cross event. And, you know, it would be interesting to see how... This unfolds next season because the preseason for 2015, there was so much hope wrapped around, you know, re, uh, reuniting these two iconic brands. You know, when we have the Ayrton Senna era of Honda McLaren with Alain Prost and all this, I mean, they were incredibly dominant. And it's just, it's amazing what 25 years can do. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it goes on. But, you know, Segwaying back into the race, we had an interesting race, not at the very front, that was quite probably for Mercedes, uh, relievingly so, usual. It was Mercedes 1-2, Lewis Hamilton on top, Nico Rosberg second, but we had Lotus on the podium with Romain Grosjean in third, something that Romain hadn't been able to do in a while, and very good for him. And then a Red Bull in fourth with Daniel Kvyat, so... And then, uh, as you mentioned before, Force India in, in fifth and Massa in sixth. So we had, what do we have here? Two, three, four, five different teams in the top six positions. Six different teams in the top seven positions, Ferrari in seventh. And a Toro Rosso in eighth. How far on do you want to go with this? <laughs> right, right. Um, and, of course, I would say that, you know, Kafiat in fourth and higher um, was helped by Vettel's tire problem, as we talked about, because I think it was, you know, Vettel and Grosjean were going to finish third and fourth one way or the other. I think, you know, if Vettel's tire hadn't blown, I think, you know, there's a chance Vettel would have been able to hold off Grosjean for the, you know, the remaining four laps or whatever, uh, and, uh, and, you know, get it all, get it all done. But, um, you know, even if Grosjean had gotten around Vettel, I don't think that Kafiat would have as well. So, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, Fair so you could say that Kafiat, Pacheco, uh, Massa, Reckoning, Verstappen, Botas, Ericsson, and Nasser maybe are a, a place higher than they otherwise would have been. But, you know, they were there to take advantage of the fact when Vettel's tire went out. Um, so so Vettel was then, you know, DNF, but he had completed that lap. And then Alonso in 13th and higher were all lapped down. Um, and then, as you mentioned, there were uh, several cars out of the race, um, including our boy Pastor Maldonado, um, who's, you know, yet again had a, had a serious off in practice and then yet again had this retirement in the race, which he said, oh, the car failed. And the car and the engineers were like, yeah, you had the 17G impact over curbs. So it's, you know, it's more of this finger pointing back and forth of like, what happened? And... Uh, you know, it's 
Well, yeah, the season carries on. But and- it's funny you mention that because it's in the news that it's becoming very likely that Renault is going to buy the Lotus team and become a full factory effort again. And in that article, it's like, yeah, hey, we're definitely going to keep Romain. I mean, it's a French driver, it's a French team, the history and all that. Pastor is also in negotiations. Yeah. And, you know, you think, okay, if there's a, a major car company behind it that, you know, maybe they have other ways of finding money, you know, their corporate sponsorship deals and some tie-ups and stuff where maybe, you know, the Venezuelan oil money is not the only way that the team can survive. So, Well, Carlos Ghosn is talking about spending manufacturer-level money on this. Right. And also making a 10-year commitment to it. So it's going to be a full factory effort financially at the very least. And Renault is – the way it's being put in – the negotiation is like there's a down payment and then a 10-year payment once a year or whatever right? to the team. So that's kind of essentially saying Renault is going to be here for at least a decade. Right. And, you know, on the plus side, that that makes them a factory effort again. And as we said, you know, having the uh, having the corporate tie-ups and all that, I mean, part of it is is just, you know, the money uh, that, you know, remember that whole thing with like quantum investments or whatever with, with Lotus at the end of last year? It was like, oh, we're going to wire the money. We just need to get these addresses figured out. There's a lot of forums and we don't know. And then it was like week after week and race after race. They're like, oh, you got all that money now? They're like, yeah, no, we don't. Uh, but they're working on it. The checks totally – like it was really weird, the effect, especially that it all played out in public. You know, that Checks just, in the mail. Yeah, very yeah. literally like, oh, it's just this wire transfer and international. Oh, it's tough because if one's in France and one's in England. And oh, my gosh, you guys, wire, money is hard. And then it was like, yeah, that never <laughs> happened. Uh, but yeah, having a proper, um, you know, part of it is just money in the accounts to to pay people, to make investments, to you know get wind tunnel time, buy components, everything. Uh, but then also, uh, when you you know a high level manufacturer like that, they have other other deals. I mean, think about you know Renault Total, um, you know the, the the history they've had there with Total Oils being another French company, yes. and Elf for oil and all these things. Like having having these other tie ups can just be really helpful, and, and you know having a kind of built in connections there. Um, so yeah, maybe. They can they can then afford to not have Pastor Maldonado on the payroll because that that's always been the thing, right? I don't I don't think anyone from Lotus um, has said you know really meaning it that like you know we we have our choice of any drivers in the field and who we really pick is you know is Pastor Maldonado is just that's our guy that's the guy we want. I mean I think they've always you know in as being as politically correct as possible sort of said yeah this you know he's a great asset to the team. It's like well we couldn't really afford to be a team if we didn't have Pastor's right. money. So. Right. They kind of, I think people understand that, and it's not necessarily that it's a bad thing. It's the reality of what it is. And to be honest, I would rather see, uh, you know, a Renault or one more team with one of those drivers being Maldonado than to see another team go bankrupt and not be on the races at all. It's like, yes, he causes problems and he crashes a lot and there's issues and he has a certain attitude that seems like he doesn't really get that he crashes a lot and that, you know, he should be better than he is and that he's there because of his money. But... um, the fact that he has enabled this team to exist and now even get on the podium and the you know in the cares of his teammate um, is I think still a net positive. So if this I, is what able that uh, enabled Renault or the uh, Lotus team to get through this and then go to be a, a Renault factory team, then that's uh, you know is what it is. I think I completely agree with you, but I think uh, I always find myself defending Pastor Maldonado. I'm not some Maldonado. I'm not some big Maldonado fan, but. He's a Grand Prix winner. He is quick. He is good. He's just not consistently good. Yeah. And I feel like it's just been bad after bad, and it's just kind of this downward sliding spiral for him. And so he tries harder, so he makes more mistakes, so his reputation gets worse, and it's just kind of in this weird place. And I don't know if that damage can be healed, but for me... As as a I, I will say as a failed driver myself, I don't want 
a driver to be looked at on too low, too poorly, just because of what I think are circumstances. He's had some success that are deserved. Now, the biggest reason he is where he is and has stayed in the sport as long as he has is the money, by far. That is absolutely, he would have been out of the sport by by now if it weren't for that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say he's some phenom that's underappreciated by any means. He's a certain kind of phenom. <laughs> right. But I just... Uh, I just, I just wish he could calm down. I mean, he is, he has potential to be good, but he's been given, he's been given quite a bit of a chance now, hasn't he? Yeah, and we've talked about this before. I mean, it's one thing to take a driver who's really good and technical, but just not quite fast or aggressive enough. It's really hard to sort of how do you teach that person to be more aggressive and to be faster in an effective way. But if you have someone who's really fast, but then occasionally screws up and occasionally very spectacularly screws up it's usually probably easier to get that person to say, okay, you know, you have the feel for the car, you have the, the raw talent um, in as much as that, uh, you know, is a, is a factor here, but just getting that person, you know, getting their, their head in the right space and their, you know, kind of, uh, you know, decision-making a little bit better. seems like probably uh, a more doable thing. And this was you know, a few years ago. I think we had this conversation about, Hey, if we can, you know, if he can just kind of get him under control a little bit, he definitely has pace and, you know, has had some really good runs. And as of course, the one famous victory in the Williams, which was a, Big deal for Williams, and that was yes. a big buoy to that team. And I think he's still paying money to Williams to part of the deal, of, you know, him switching teams or whatever. So, you know, the fact that he's, you know, used this oil uh, oil money from Venezuela and that is supported now multiple Formula One teams, um, that's that's not bad. You know, that's good. And, you know, it made Frank Williams really happy. And Frank's daughter, Claire, also very smiley. So Most important you, thing. You can't, uh, you can't discount that. Uh, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it just seems like if it hasn't happened by now, what is it that's going to be different, uh, you know, that's going to, what situation could he be put in? Maybe it's with just the right manager or the right team, you know, team principal that can just, for whatever reason, you know, you know, kind of get to him and appeal to him on the right level where he goes, oh yeah, I get that now. Like if I just change the way I approach this or that, then it's all good. I mean, maybe, but um, the other thing about the Renault Lotus deal, um, A, it's kind of weird because it was, you know, the factory Renault team and then it was, you know, Lotus Renault, um, and then, you know, back in an era where there were two Lotus teams and yes. then, of course, Lotus Formula One and Lotus Racing and Lotus Grand Prix or whatever. Uh, now, of course, it's Lotus Mercedes. So they have Mercedes powertrains. So then the question is, how soon do they go back to running Renault engines? And how does the team feel about that? Um, having had now, you know, having a year of experience, uh, at least one year of experience. I don't know if for 2016, if they'll already be back to Renaults or if they're going to run Mercedes powertrains again next year. But then all of a sudden, Mercedes, as, you know, one of the other works teams, uh, may look at them as a customer a little bit differently, thinking, okay, this is, uh, you know, effectively going to be a works team. I mean, I don't think this has officially been announced yet, but it's all sort of been, you know, oh, Autosport has learned this is a it's thing. Advanced. Like, it's, I mean, because there was, there was talks of Renault also buying Force India. Right. So it's not completely finalized, but it sounds very likely at this point that it will be Lotus. Right. So, you know, how does that play into, you know, if they say, hey, well, we, you know, we had some seasons with the Renault and now we have the Mercedes and we know all about that, you know, powertrain uh, pretty well um, and it's faster. Uh, and yet now, you know, the new deal is we have to go back and, you know, work with the Renault to really make it make it right. And I guess in a way, this is Renault hedging against Red Bull doing whatever Red Bull's going to do. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Yeah. You know, because Red Bull is trying to find a way to get Mercedes power. And part of that, you know, I mentioned Aston Martin using Mercedes engines, AMG engines. Well, they're talking about Aston Martin being the title sponsor for Red Bull, you know. Right. Becoming the Aston Martin team and all this kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of connections where Red Bull is trying to get their way out of the Renault connection. And, you know, I'm still, 
I'm still a little bit iffy about how much, definitely some circumstances blame Renault engines for certain of it, but some circumstances, no, it was definitely the chassis for their luck. Right. And that's where you kind of, you know, you want to see, that's that AB comparison we were talking about that we never really have with Honda. But if... Oh yeah, Toro Rosso and Red Bull. Absolutely. Well, and that, but also if Red Bull switches to Mercedes, um, are they right there, you know, right there with the Mercedes and, you know, and dominating? Like it's all, it's all these two teams or nothing, you know, it's like a big gap to everyone else. Or are they still going to have, you know, issues where drivers are struggling, where the team is struggling, the car is struggling, and getting the tires to work and everything else. Like they've made it seem like you guys, we would be dominating right now if it weren't for these super crappy Renault engines. And so to sort of call their bluff a little bit, and if next year or the year after they have Mercedes engines, if Mercedes are then still the class of the field, um, or if they get Ferrari power or whatever happens and they say, okay, no excuses on the engine guys. You know, you see what happens and maybe they dominate and it's like, okay, they were right. You know, they, they would have been at the top and now they have the right engine. They're at the top. Or as we think is probably more likely, um, you know, yeah, that maybe they get some closer, but there's still plenty to do on the car and the chassis. And, you know, how's Adrian Newey's connection and how's that going these days? And do you have, uh, you know, how, how is the rest of the team? Um, and for, cause from what we've heard, you know, after the, the reign of dominance, you know, there are people that their entire career at Red Bull, uh, you know, and talking about in the factory and in the, you know, the whole company around the, the marketing and just everything um, in the team, let alone all the engineering and the drivers, um, where their whole, the whole tenure at Red Bull was when it was just on the up and up and up and up and everything was, un, you know, they were unbeatable. They're all getting these amazing bonuses. Every, everything was, you know, you do your hard work in the factory and then on the weekend you saw the success and it was great. Then they had uh, one really bad year and another uh, okay year. And then now, you know, you're working really hard in the factory and yet you don't get the sweet bonus and you don't see the success and just so many people leaving and getting poached off. And also, I mean, when you're on top, other people want to hire you so that, you know, a lot of the, maybe the best people have been moved away. So I really wonder how uh, Red Bull could get back to their dominating ways. I mean, of course, it's always possible. Things can always change, but it seems like they've come from such a high to such a low and the, just the transformation of the company in that process um, is, is going to be so much harder to overcome to come back to a really positive, winning, let alone dominating kind of place. I completely agree. It's it's this weird cycle, right? I mean, we talked about early in the podcast, the McLaren-Honda dominance seemed unbeatable in the late 80s, early 90s. Then Williams with the FW14B, that was unbeatable. There's no way they were ever going to come, come. And then there was a little bit of McLaren and Mercedes and all that, and Williams kind of dancing around. And then we got into the early, the knots, um, Ferrari was the dominant car. Right. You know, it's, there's these cycles and at those cycles. So and it was Braun for one year, right. you know, it was Mercedes dominant. Well, it was Braun for half a year. Well, yeah. And then Red Bull, right? right. And Mercedes dominance will end and who will pick up the baton? Can't say you can't, you can't. It could be, well, I won't say any of them, but it could be many of those teams. It could be any one of the current teams. It could be some new teams. Don't forget, you know. yeah, we've got a whole new shakeup of of uh, race rules coming in 2017. Right. And exactly how that's going to fall, who knows. But it, it Mercedes dominance continuing on for much longer is, in my opinion, very unlikely. Right. I mean, for now, as this race weekend saw, you know, Lewis Hamilton was basically untouchable. You know, there was no, no one that on just pace could keep up there. Even his teammate, you know, Rosberg, who just in every session was just not quite there, um, including qualifying and then yep. including the race. It was just like, you know, nope, Lewis Hamilton right now just has it, you know, the car, the driver, the whole thing is just working as 
best you could possibly imagine right now. And uh, I know he's very happy with that, and rightfully so. Uh, but yeah, like you say, it's it's not going to last forever. And uh, it's that that's kind of the the good news and exciting thing is that you know we don't know who it's going to be next. You know, maybe a Renault factory team just for whatever reason they get all their all their you know engineers all go, going in a great way and they get the money they need and they get a good program and the stability. I mean, that's the other thing. If, if I'm trying to hire people uh, to work at my Formula One team. If I'm Red Bull and saying, like, yeah, we've had some great success and now we really kind of suck, but hey, you know, we're switching engines. And it's going to be a whole thing. It's a big gamble. Um, you know, that's that's one job offer you have. The other one is, hey, come work at Renault. It's the factory team. We've got this 10-year commitment. We've got this good deal. You know we're going to be around. You know we've got a big influx of cash coming. And there's at least a 10-year future, which is kind of forever in Formula One. Um, that's going to be, I think, a lot easier to recruit people. And so then you have, you know, different engineers working on different projects, especially people that know Renault powertrains that maybe work at Red Bull now. Um, if they get poached away by, by a factory Renault, like there's so many factors here that uh, can really come into, you know, who's going to be the next uh, dominant force. Uh, then let alone, you know, yeah, it's very unlikely that one of the new teams at Haas F1 is going to be a dominant force. But, um, you know, one never knows who has the right engineering, you know, or just finds the clever loophole. I mean, thinking of double diffusers and blown diffusers and things, yeah. you know, who finds the clever rule at the right time. And It's interesting you bring up Haas, though, because with Haas, it might help Ferrari edge up and be dominant team again because they effectively, with Haas, will have a quote-unquote support team. Right. And that that could be the edge that Ferrari needed to move up and be dominant again. Right. So it's, yeah, interesting times for sure. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm I, as usual, you know, there's sometimes like the beginning of the season, it's always exciting to see who's who's going to be where, you know, what's going to be this year. And, you know, will, will Red Bull be back on top, you know, or whatever. In, in this case, obviously, Mercedes has just really shown that they're dominant. And for the rest of this year, I don't think it's likely. I mean, yeah, we could see another, you know, Ferrari victory. We could see a Williams victory. We could see a few things, but it's, you know, in general, the, the you know, ongoing uh, thing seems to be that it's going to be Mercedes still very, very strong. But next year we get a new team. Year after that, we get a bunch of new regulations. And there's always going to be these little tweaks about, you know, radio things and the, the starts like you talked about, uh, you know, and just to kind of keep moving things forward and, you know, getting interesting about it. Um, we don't have as many changes in the driver lineup as we maybe thought. That was confirmed uh, this past week, of course, that Raikkonen and Vettel will be staying at Ferrari for next year. Mm-hmm. And that was the biggest potential move of the driver market was, okay, will Botas go to Red, or sorry, go to, go to Ferrari and then right. he goes to Williams and blah, 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 blah. But uh, in a slightly unexpected uh, announcement, it was announced, oh, Kimi Raikkonen's on again one more year. And okay, that's happening again, you know, that, especially after his recent run of, of some poor results. There was a lot of question of, will it be Reckoning again, or will they have some new upstart, or will they go to Botas, or how they, you know, Hulkenberg, who knows? And now it turns out, nope, it's uh, it's Reckoning again. So it kind of moves that conversation to 2017 now for the top levels of, of you know, I don't, and Mercedes, um, I think, is going to stay where it is for now, and why would they change at this point? Uh, they've got two really good drivers with plenty of plenty of good years ahead of them, it seems. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, it's funny because... <laughs> Is I just hope that uh, Rosberg can find a new calm and yeah. uh, just bring himself back. Because when he did calm down, don't forget it was oh gosh, it was Spain, Monaco, which was that one in and of itself was a gift, and then I think I think Hamilton won Canada again, but it was British Grand Prix. I don't know. It was three of those four. He had a good run in there, and, and Rosberg won three out of four. Right in that in that group. I can't remember whether it was Canada. Or England, off the top of my head. But the point is, if he can get himself to a new calm, he's right there and can really... But he's just, he's in this weird state where he's just like, he's got this like personal chip on his shoulder with Hamilton that he can't shake off. Right, and he's in the dominant car, which 
for any other driver is a blessing because it's like, man, if only I could be in the top car. He's in the top car, and yet he's just not quite there against his teammate. And that's right. the toughest situation because he has no excuse of like, oh, well, maybe the tires or the car could have been this or that or the engineering because everyone else can look at it, look at the lap times and look at the deltas. Um, and even in this race, you see, okay, Lewis Hamilton, um, obviously in first place, two seconds later, Nico Rosberg, 35 or what, 39, 38 seconds later was Grosjean. And then, you know, on back from there, there's this huge gap. Um, in, in pretty much anything qualifying and in racing between the top two guys and everybody else. So he's one of the top two guys, but more more often than not, in the last few run of races, he's been the second place guy. So it's just that added pressure of, dude, you're in the best car. Why aren't you, why aren't you like winning half the time? Uh, and, you know, he had that string where he was, but on just one lap pace, just for whatever reason, Lewis is, you know, everything's working for him right now. And, uh, you know, it, that, that is the kind of thing that can switch back and forth between the end of the season. Now, we can't say that Lewis is just going to dominate for the rest of the season. And there's, you know, it's well, gonna, we, we can say that. We can say we whatever just we want. might not be right. Right. But, you know, I, I don't think <laughs> it's... Here we go. Lewis will be dominant for the rest of the season. No, he won't. I still have Nico Rosberg as my as my pre you know end of last season. Who's going to be world champion next year? I have yeah. still have Nico Rosberg for that because I can't change that now. So I'm still holding out. You know, and but it's possible, right? I mean, Lewis is one of these guys too. I mean, if if you know he gets into another relationship with some weird pop star or whatever happens, and his his you know his focus is all messed up, then that seems like the kind of thing that's less likely to happen to Rosberg, who's now you know happily married and uh, you know just doing his doing his family thing now. So you know who knows, right? But. The Mercedes is, is certainly at the top. Rosberg is not in a great, uh, not a great headspace, I think, right now. Um, but you know, he's. I think his attitude seems better about it because there was a while between the two of them where it was really, you know, this animosity and oh, I'm looking after my own race and why aren't you looking after my race and oh, oh it's yeah. a team oh, and oh, we're not, we're drivers and whatever. And it's you know that exactly. I think we're we seem to be past that for now. Where um, in the interviews for after qualifying stuff, Rosberg just sort of was like, yeah, well, I did my thing and he was better than me, but. Anyway, you know, race tomorrow, we'll see. And then after the race, it's like, yeah, well, he did his thing and he won and I didn't. So anyway, next race, you know, just he's not quite as nasty about it, but it's still got to, you know, it's still got to stop being that close and yet, um, you know, not being the guy uh, or not being, you know, as as close to being the guy as it could be. So uh, you mentioned your predictions uh, for the championship lean. My predictions for... For this race, I put uh, Mr. Uh, Valtteri Botas on the pole uh, and Lewis Hamilton to win the race. Uh, that didn't go exactly like I planned. However, Botas qualified very well. I, if I remember correctly, he did qualify third. And uh, and then Lewis Hamilton did go on to win the race. So I only, I only got two points. But that still put me in, what, 87 billionth or whatever? I mean... 89th. Yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, you were there was a number of people with two point predictions, including yourself. You were the, actually apparently the only one who went Botas Hamilton, um, but a handful of people that uh, picked Rosberg Rosberg. That was the the, the other two point sure, uh, result. Sure, sure. And then some people on from there. But yeah, uh, eighty what? Ooh, um, so sixty nine folks, myself included, correctly predicted Hamilton for pole, Hamilton for the win for zero points. So well done to all of us, yes, <laughs> me and sixty eight of my close friends. Uh, then there were a bunch of Rosberg Hamilton and a few Hamilton Rosbergs, which each winch was worth one point. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, and then you know, kind of goes on back from there. Will Carver, button button, dude, I thirty one points. He deserves so much. More. I mean, look, maybe this was all part of his uh, marketing brilliance of Boone. He's like, I'm going to pick knowingly this, and I'm going to stick with it because I will get more attention than anybody else. Be it uh, our current leader, Mr. Uh, was it Nate? Nels Erlamo was the current leader. N- Nels Erlamo. There you go. Nels Erlamo gets uh, shout-outs. He's been doing quite well. 
Well, he's only one point. He's, so he's in the lead by himself, um, but only one point ahead of uh, 25 folks. There are 25 way tie for second place with 11 points. Mm. That is some close, close racing, my friends. Um, I so that so the number one right now, lowest score, best score is Nils with 10 points. Um, and then you know if I I'm in I'm in 31st with only 13 points. So a few points swing here. <laughs> That's just amazing. Is a big deal, right? Yeah, um, and I still my points. I'm still in the 20s. I'm pretty sure you have 39 points. 30s, 30s, okay. putting you in 70th place. Yeah, and it Which looks like a lot of that move was, up. <laughs> Because uh, I think I was 73rd last I That's checked. That's right. You have moved up three places. Will Carver has 349 points. We should just flip the script and be like, whoever has the most points wins. That's and not how that works. It's funny. I'm I'm telling Jim this for the, and everyone for the first time. I actually am thinking of potentially for next year and beyond coming up with a scheme that is more complicated but more interesting of waiting – the scores of like who's going to win versus who's most likely to win, right? And and actually uh, scaling it out because I think ultimately the math can be logical and not too complicated, and it would mean a lot more if right if you pick Botas and then it was so much less you know on the odds on Botas were great then you right. come out way ahead and of course there are predictions but like well, things that happen that we could you know use a, some other system that's already out there for example if you were to pick. Uh, Grosjean for the Belgian Grand Prix, that would have likely been a very good result because where Lotus is doing in their average finishing order would put them pretty low in the pecking order. And he beat the spread, as it were. He beat the spread by a, by a comfortable amount. So even though he didn't win the race, that would be, you know, more valuable than, you know, picking Hamilton. Right. I think that does get pretty complicated pretty quickly because then how do we determine what the odds are and is this race to race where we say, okay, at the beginning of the year, it seems like there's no way Lotus would have been there. But then at the end of the year, like, you know, if the odds on McLaren were uh, whatever, you know. It's- well, but to that point, it just you know, what we would do is we would pick, we would come up with something that we both agreed was at least reasonable and logical. And then we'd stick to that and be like, hey, this is the way it is. And if it skews one way or the other, that'll change at the predetermined time we said it will change. But I don't know. For me, there's a predetermined time now. See, this sounds complicated. Yes. Anyway, we can we can talk about it. We have plenty of time before the end of this season and the off season, the beginning of next season. Point is, before the end of the season, I will come up with a way for Will Carver to win this. That's my point. That's okay. There, <laughs> I guess that's reverse engineering at its finest. Yes. Well. So, um, did you, sir? I, I didn't hear. Did you actually make a prediction for the Italian Grand Prix? Have you? I did have not you put it in there. No, yet? but I will. Okay. So right now. You know, our, our statistical model, Damien, thinks that Hamilton will be on pole and that Hamilton will win. Oh, that Damien. Because that's what happened last time, and I have to say that's a pretty strong prediction. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I really want to go Botox again, but... You could. I could, I could, be, but Williams, because this is, what is Monza? Williams has Mercedes power, and Monza is a low downforce track. You want to trim the thing out. Well, the Williams is fundamentally trimmed out it's a low drag car that gives williams but ferrari has been doing very very well and it's monza and it's the tifosi and italian blah 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 and pizza and anything else that you can think of and ferrari oh my god ferrari at monza basically so, yeah ferrari at monza ermagerd er mer ger so you going reckoning reckoning so despite my interest, despite my heart wanting to go Raikkonen, Raikkonen. Oh, come on. 
Sebastian Vettel on pole and win the race. Ooh. That's my prediction. Alrighty. A bold choice, sir. And because there's no uh, odds or waiting to give you any extra benefit if that comes true. That is true. Um, you know, that's, that, that's the, the, basically the reasoning behind that is like, you know, it's, then it becomes uh, more lame and expected, you know, because the, the odds on Hamilton would be whatever. Um, so, uh, but yeah, because that's not how our system works now, I'm going to stick with my ham ham. And uh, Damien and I are going to uh, carry on how we're well, doing. Well, aren't you and Damien just best buds now? Well, I'm just me and my spreadsheet buddy. We're just spreadsheet buddies. <laughs> me and my spreadsheet buddy. I thought I was your spreadsheet buddy. Well... You were, but then you, went, you went off into my heart says reckoning, but I'm not voting that way because blah, I don't know. Yeah, the spreadsheet told me. Yeah, so anyway, I think, I mean, dude, come on, Hamilton just has it right now. It is, everything is going fine, and maybe Ferrari will do well, and maybe maybe Williams will do well, um, and if so, maybe it's Monza, maybe it's Botas, but there is a very good chance that Hamilton will do very well at Monza, and that is how I am going. So, speaking of predictions and the future, of course, this race podcast was a week later than the race. My apologies. I think that is going to happen again next week. I do not have another child with a birthday, um, but... <laughs> At least legitimate. With the <laughs> Of course he went there. Um, but no, we've uh, just various yeah, schedules and travel and whatnot mean that we're not going to be able to, uh, to cover that one live or podcast directly afterward. So I think like this one, you'll probably get it the weekend following. So you can still have it. A podcast for your Monday morning commute. It'll just be a different Monday. Um, but then I think we'll be on schedule for a few of them after that. So it's, it's maybe. Like, it's like a fine line, though. The, our, our podcasts age well, and we just aged it before putting it out on the table. Mm, just kind of made me want cheese when you said that. It's finally aged. Mm. Well, you know. Or wine, but whatever. Cheese well, is cooler than but wine. But honestly, a Belgium, if, if you add frites to that, mm. there's our taste of the race right there. Oh, I'm hungry. See? Anyway, thank you, as always, for listening. Um, you can always visit funwithcars.com, where you can see show notes for each week's episode with links to stories we talk about and things like that. Those show notes are probably also available in the podcast player of your choice. Um, you can always email us to feedback at funwithcars.com if you've got something you'd like to share with us. And there are, of course, links on our webpage to our presence on Twitter, hashtag FWCars, and Facebook, and I guess that's about it, actually. Yeah, uh, you know, I've been Twittering. I've been doing the tweets. Yes, I feel bad because this weekend uh, we had a number of people uh, trying to take part with us on social media and, you know, with uh, my, you know, kiddo birthday and all this stuff, it was, I was just not even part of it at all. So I do appreciate uh, people uh, spending the time and sharing their, their thoughts and uh, reactions and everything with us. And it's unfortunate when uh, we don't have uh, just quite the, uh, quite the time to make it all, to, to take part in all that stuff as well. But uh, we definitely appreciate it and uh, hope to be able to uh, keep up with you guys more often in the future. Although uh, we're already kind of setting ourselves up for that for Italy uh, being delayed, but but uh, I mean, look, uh, we'll, do our, we'll do the best we can. When when uh, fun with cars becomes our one and only jobs because we're so baller status that uh, this is our career, we're amazing. Then we will make sure that that does not happen. But with day jobs and everything else, you know, such is life, right? So it goes. Um, so yeah, I guess until, so probably two weeks from now. So in, in one week, you've got the Italian Grand Prix. In two weeks, you've got the Italian Grand Prix Fun With Cars F1 podcast. Um, until then, take care, everyone, and thank you for listening. I am Jim Lyle. And I'm Robin Warner, Justin Wilson. Our hearts go out. Rest in peace. <laughs>